Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. I'll be remarking on this later on, uh, but I just want to say how much I appreciate the chance to be with all of you. I know that I owe everything that I want to talk about right now to the fact that I am carried in an ocean of sincerity and dedication and love. And I want to I want to talk about some things that arise out of that for me, um, even some different a couple of difficult things that I'll get to toward the end. Uh, I'm going to present some ideas and then I'm going to present something that makes me doubt everything about those ideas. So I hope you will stick with me on the journey for this. Um, I want to talk first about some things I learned from a very enlightening, very delightful recent experience, which was uh, co-leading uh, a brief intensive with Kim uh, and participating with many people. It focused on the the on at least parts of the Satipatthana Sutra or Sutta. Pardon me. Uh, later on, I'm going to talk about uh, a modern day koan that Flint has shared and that I've thought about for years. Uh, and, and by the way, which I have been remembering incorrectly, and I wanna talk about why, why that matters. Uh, and uh, I want to try and use this as a way to explore connections between small mind and big mind. Uh, and how we have the paradoxical duty of figuring out with help from our teachers, but still for ourselves, how small mind and big mind fit together. Uh, let me say, I, I'm gonna be talking about the Satipatthana Sutta. And of course, Peg, five years ago, led a series of classes about the, the Sutta. Uh, and uh, it was in 2019. Uh, recordings are available on SoundCloud. So you can listen to what Peg led uh, during that time, you can hear the responses from the members of the class that were really great and really helped elucidate what she was trying to to uh, to get across with the exploration that she led. Um, and Kim and I used uh, material from her classes, and then mostly we relied on a book called Satipatthana Meditation and Practice Guide by Bhikkhu Analayam. Kim had a fantastic idea, which was as part of the intensive to have some talks and then to follow those talks with recordings of Bhikkhu, Bhikkhu Analayo um, leading guided meditations that address the points that were covered in the talk. And, and thank you, there's a note, note from Darcy Snyder. Laurie also led a recent intensive focusing on the Satipatthana Sutta. And Darcy says that it had a big impact on her. In fact, I did not listen to, to Laurie's 
record to the recordings of that, and I, I apologize that I have skipped over that in mentioning it before. So thanks, Darcy, for mentioning it. So I want to start with just a brief selection from Gil Franzdahl's translation uh, at the beginning of the of the sutra. And uh, pardon me, my dog is trying to get my wife's attention to let her in the house. I hope my wife will hear uh, and we won't listen to my dog barking. Um, the, the reason I chose this one is because other translations are heavily gendered and Gil Franzdahl's translation is not, as you will see. It begins, I have heard it this way. Once the Blessed One was staying in the country of Kuru, in the Kuru town of Kamasadama, he addressed the monastics. Monastics. Yes, venerable sir, they replied. Monastics, this is the direct path for purifying beings, for overcoming sorrow and lamentation, for vanquishing pain and distress, for attaining the right approach, for realizing nirvana, namely the four ways of establishing awareness. What are the four? Putting aside greed and distress for the world a monastic observes with ardor, comprehension, and awareness the body itself. Putting aside greed and distress for the world a monastic observes with ardor, comprehension, and awareness feeling tones in themselves. Putting aside greed and distress for the world, a monastic observes with ardor, comprehension, and awareness, the mind in itself. Putting aside greed and distress for the world, a monastic observes with ardor, comprehension, and awareness, dharmas, dharmas in themselves. How, he says, do you go about doing that, the Buddha says. Here's an example. Breathing in, one knows. Breathing in long, one knows. I am breathing in long. Breathing in short, one knows. I am breathing in short. Breathing out long, one knows. I am breathing out long. Breathing out short, one knows. I am breathing out short. One trains oneself. Breathing in, I experience the whole body. One trains oneself. Breathing out, I experience the whole body. These are brief excerpts from a very long discourse. Uh, he, and he continues later. In addition, monastics, when walking, a monastic knows I am walking. When standing, one knows I am standing. When sitting, one knows I am sitting. When lying down, one knows I am lying down. And um, after many, many, many examples and, and guided uh, meditations, the Buddha uh, says, uh, he, he concludes with an amazing conclusion. Does anybody remember it? It has to do with the, the amount of time to be spent engaging with the sutta. Um, I, I, I see a couple of smiles because I made a big deal out of this at the beginning of our, of our retreat a couple of weeks ago. But uh, here's, here's what he says. Now, if anyone would develop these four frames of reference in this way for seven years, one of two fruits can be expected for him. Either gnosis here and now, or if there be any remnant of clinging susten sustenance, 
a clinging or sustenance, I should say. It could be non-return. Then the Buddha considers further. He says, how long? Seven years. No, not even one year. Seven months? Not even one month. And then, let alone half a month. If anyone would develop these four frames of reference in this way for seven days, two fruits can be expected for that person. Either gnosis right here and now, or if there be any remnant of clinging or sustenance, non-return. Pretty amazing. Just a week. Actually, of course, the initial list of four items to focus on proliferates. And it turns out there are dozens, perhaps even hundreds of things, as various aspects of body, feeling, tone, mind, and dharmas are considered one by one in mind-boggling profusion. And they are then to be considered in various aspects, of which I can remember only a few. Uh, internal, external, worldly, unworldly, all sorts of mental formations, including hindrances and seeds of awakening. This and that, this and not that, neither this nor that, not neither this nor that, and so on. I, I feel it would take at least a week to parse out the whole list, much less contemplate them with ardor and awareness, and that it really would take seven years to do justice to what the Buddha is suggesting. Um, we are all probably familiar with the distinction between small mind and big mind, between the type of thinking that is determined by conditioning uh, and what Joko Beck calls the self-centered dream, uh, the type of thinking that clings to the world of suffering, as opposed to big mind, the, the open, spacious awareness that we can have access to when we see our conditioning for what it is and let it relax. <clears throat> Speaking from my, my small mind here, I want to say that the long, long list of considerations in the Satipatthana Sutta is one of the reasons why I've had trouble with it in the past, resisting even Peg's presentation years ago. Another is that there is never any direct mention of compassion in the Sutta. That's always kind of buggy. I've read it and, and listened to it before. Finally, it, there are an awful lot of I statements, at least at the beginning. I know I am this. I know I am that. I know I possess this. I know I, I lack that, etc. Um, and I compare that a lot in my small mind with uh, Dogen's words, which I have always taken as a kind of a warning. Dogen warns that zazen is not learning meditation. It's not gaining meditation, but it is simultaneous. Simultaneously, he says, practice realization. So an organized course of practice, practice in which you go step by step through something seems to go against what Dogen's um, uh, advice is on what zazen should be. And again, I'm speaking from my small mind here, and I want to come to a different place by the end of this talk that I hope, I hope will make a kind of a sense. Um, and 
And then I, and then there's an additional point, which is that I find that my small mind has a way of reasserting itself and uh, renewing itself as soon as I get up from the cushion back to the world of suffering. And that is, you know, so I've been practicing the Satipatthana Sutta and following the steps that the Buddha outlined. And whereas I've had some insights and some, some um, feeling of recognition and, and of connection while engaged in those, they don't last. And that is, of course, one of the marks of dukkha, that good things don't last. And uh, that we push away the things that we don't like and we try and cling desperately to things that don't last because they are uh, temporary by nature. What I, the reason why am I talking about this is because I think that the Satipatthana Sutra provides a bridge between uh, small mind and big mind and because it helps me uh, get past what I've been pointing to, uh, my small mind problem of saying, oh, but Dogen said this, so what I, I have to be suspicious of or even discount what I'm, what I'm understanding from the, the Satipatthana Sutta. Um, then, and just that the Satipatthana Sutta presents a bridge between small mind and big mind. The Satipatthana Sutta extends a series of invitations offering methods for step-by-step -step investigation of questions such as what can we know of and through our bodies when we stop to pay attention to moment-to-moment experience? Uh, or, and what can we learn from the shifting nature of our perceptions and our attachment to those perceptions? And what is the effective, the effective tone or the, the um, well, the effective tone, coloring my perceptions right now. And, and how long does it last and how does it change? And, how, and, and the question, how is my mind? The Satipatthana Sutra might begin with a lot of I statements, but over and over again, it leads us to disidentify with the ego and to see that what we think of as solid is in fact composite, constantly changing and without a fixed identity. We are given signposts to, to focus on, sensations in the body, automatic leanings toward grasping or aversion uh, in our feeling tones, lust and anger are other qualities in our minds that can be hindrances in the way that all phenomena ceaselessly arise and pass away. Gradually, we are invited to look at the broader landscape around those signposts, around those those elements, and we're, we're invited to look not first at them, but then to see the space around them, um, and to see that our minds are, in fact, also open and free all the time, that they are big mind, that we, are, that we have the capacity to develop equanimity and compassion and other qualities that we call uh, the Brahma uh, Viharas. It's as if uh, the, the metaphor occurs to me, the, the, the Satipatthana Sutta invites us to go in and look at a bunch of trees and then gradually 
to realize that by, by this careful, honest examination, that we are in a living, breathing ecosystem, that there's a forest and that it is a ecosystem that contains us uh, as well as the objects that we're looking at. Uh, Analayo says that we can, we find that we can rest when our minds inevitably wander in the joy of finding ourselves alive and awake in the present moment and in this spacious mind that we can just naturally uh, open to as we sincerely in, and with ardor investigate these signposts. This simple discovery can help us, he says, when we get tired or discouraged. As Dogen says, what we find is that this is the Dharma gate of repose and bliss. The way the, the Buddha presents all these ideas is matter of fact. I, I said this during the intensive, and I, I think it's really important to say it now. It's matter of fact. There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing holy about this type of investigation. There are challenging requirements. Uh, we need to have a keen, ardent interest, energy, and open receptivity, as well as a balanced and unbiased capacity for observation, meeting moment-to-moment -moment experience, as Analyo puts it, smilingly. So we have to disengage from the stories that our small mind tells us in order to be, to, to, to engage in this type of investigation. But again, it is so gradual and so incremental that I think the Buddha is really helping us a lot in this process of, of disidentification with small mind and engagement with capacities that we can find within ourselves. After a careful cultivation of mindfulness through the body, the feelings, and many types of mental formation, the Satipatthana Sutta invites us to discern the presence or absence within ourselves of seven seeds of awakening. When we find in the search within our minds and our actions, or what we find in the search within our minds for, for the seeds of awakening, is that the search itself is a mode of awakening to mindfulness, curiosity, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equipoise. Uh, not equanimity in, in Analio's translation, but equipoise, equipoise uh, a, a balanced consideration, uh, not resigned uh, consideration in the sense that it can sometimes be attached to equanimity, but balance. Uh, and again, we can only see these qualities or the absence of these qualities from within a big, a, a big mind, from within a spacious consideration that itself is full of compassion and gratitude. Uh, Analayo says, this is my final quote from Analayo, the very act of investigating the seeds of awakening in a way serves as a complement to our insight that body, feelings, and mind are empty, that they are not something we can truly own, 
At the same time, we do own something rather precious. That is the potential to awaken, which renews moment by moment. So I want to turn to this modern day koan, and, and I have to confess uh, that I've been uh, misremembering it for years, and I learned this from Flint a couple of weeks ago. So here's a story that I heard Flint, that again, I got this wrong, but, and you probably heard it right, and please bear with me as I say koan. Mm. But what I heard was a story that um, Flint was talking with his teacher, Sam K. Blanchard. And that at one point, he said to her something like, I really did well in Zazen this morning. I was able to really be concentrated and really present, and it just felt great. And this is the way I remember it, and it's wrong. Blanche reacted with, as he says, the closest I've ever seen to anger from her. And she said, you don't sit zazen. Zazen sits zazen. So from small mind, all I remembered with that was the anger. I didn't hear, I, I mean, I did, I did in some way hear the rest of the story, that it is necessary to remember that you need to disidentify with your small mind and not be thinking about your accomplishments and what you're gaining and so on, which Dogen talks about and which seems to be underlying the story there, the, the lesson from Dogen. So I asked Flint about this a couple of weeks ago during a teacher's meeting, and he told the story this way. Blanche Hartman meeting with Suzuki Roshi for practice discussion uh, after a, a morning of sitting, said to Suzuki Roshi, I feel like I really did well in Zazen this week. I was able to count all my breaths and not lose track and, and really maintain focus and had a joyous sense of spaciousness in my in my sitting this morning. And then as, as Flint told the story a couple weeks ago, Blanche said, Suzuki Roshi reacted with the closest I've ever seen to anger. He almost got up out of his seat and said, you don't sit Zazen. Zazen sits Zazen. So for me, that's a very powerful lesson in the, this relationship between small mind and big mind. Like I heard that story and I filtered it through my own family drama in which a, a child brings forth an experience of discovery and, and even enjoyment and is met with a kind of dismissive answer, even anger. But the story was not that. It was blank. The story was Blanche telling about an experience that she had to gently help Flint see, oh, and I, I'm sorry, so I I asked Flint, I said, uh, Flint, God, I've misunderstood this all this time. So that was something Blanche was talking about, Suzuki Roshi, not, not you getting this response from Blanche. He said, well, that's right, but it's because I had brought a similar sort of thing to her. 
And she was gently telling me this story as a way to help me not make the same mistake. So, I, you know, again, why am I talking about this? Uh, first of all, it's a story that has had a big influence on me. It's one of the things that really made me uncomfortable with trying to connect with the, the Buddha's lessons from, from the Satipatthana Sutta. And um, I've, 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 I've jumped ahead in my, my script here and I want to catch up with it. So I knew that I wanted to talk about the relationship between small mind and big mind. And this just seems like a great example for me of how it is possible, even in sincerity, to mishear things uh, and to have the capacity to uh, rehear things as Blanche and, and as Blanche guided Flint to do, and as Flint has guided us so well, and Peck has guided us so well over time, to not be tricked by our earlier reactions. But, and I will say in my case, to have the courage to ask Flint, you know, I'm pretty, this is the way I remember it. Did I get this wrong? And then to be met by Flint saying, yeah, you got this wrong, but, but it was in a context in which the, the basic lesson was the same. That just makes a big difference to me. So, I believe that the practical advice for meditation that the Buddha offers in the Satipatthana Sutta offers a bridge. And uh, it's a way through patient step-by-step -step investigation to go from small mind to an appreciation that big mind is always present and always available everywhere in every interaction, in every phenomenon that we encounter in this world even if you're going to mess it up, like I did. It's, a, it's available. Indeed, the Buddha says, just take your time, and you could find the path that will allow Zazen to sit Zazen within the contours of your very own mind. I believe that, that trying to reason things out is actually not a bad thing. The Buddha told the Kalamas early in his career, use your reason, test things out for yourself. Are they wholesome? Are they leading to awakening? Can they give you a greater sense of freedom or not? And, and, and use your reason to help you figure out what will be most beneficial to your life. In his last words to the few remaining um, uh, attendance that he had in his life after all his, all his other followers had abandoned. He says, be a light unto yourself. Use your reason and your experience to test out what is the appropriate path for you. Don't, don't as, he, and, uh, as he told the columns, don't rely on authority. Don't just go by scripture. Don't just... Uh, do things because somebody charismatic told you. Check it out. So, I'm just I, I, what I want to say is that this is a very important 
um, series of stumbling blocks on the path for me. And that uh, I just am really paying attention to what Peg and Flint and all our teachers have told us that the obstacles are the path. And that being able to, to go through small mind to see the openness of big mind is an important part of my path. So thank you. That's my talk for today. I invite any questions. Although how you could formulate a question out of that mishmash of stuff, I don't know. Hi, Cam. Hi, so I don't think we should dismiss the um, Socrates did that when he was going facing the hemlock that was going to put him to death. He said the philosopher would want not to have a body because then he could see things clearly. And I think a lot of uh, in our Judeo-Christian re religions, we see um, getting rid of uh, the flesh would be great. And what's, I think it's really important that these are two sides of the coin and we need the small mind to get the data to work with it, to become enlightened. And that we should be grateful that we have a small mind rather than you know, trying to leave it at home and then come here with big mind. So, right. so anyway, yeah. I, I, many times I thought to myself, if only I didn't have a small mind, but we really need it. And that's what's so beautiful to me about Buddhism is that it takes the information from the small mind or even about the Satipatthana. Half of the picture is having these feelings and thoughts and bodily sensations. And then but now we have another way of dealing with them rather than just to be overrun by them. Thank you. That's a that's a beautiful way of saying. It. Uh, I was in a I was in a, um, uh, a class led by um, John Eric and Jessica Steinbaumer on Saturday mornings for the last couple of weeks, and uh, I, I've mentioned this to a number of people over the last week or so that um, in the first meeting of the group, uh, the title of the meeting of of, of the class was um, calming the mind. And I took part in it. And Jessica and John Eric led us through uh, a, a, an exercise, the beginning, of saying um, where we were in the present moment, uh, thinking about what we were experiencing in the present moment and trying to put that into words using the formulation of talking about our body, our mind, and our hearts. And the hearts being the effective domain of connection with others. And um, we went through this, and we went, we went through the body, we went through the mind. And after a while, a number of people expressed uh, uh, a desire to kind of get to the point and get to, to the um, whatever John and Eric, John Eric and uh, Jessica were going to present about calming the mind. Like, what's the technique here? Uh, and uh, I, I, I didn't say it out loud, but I certainly was. 
I, I had that thought in my mind at various times. But then gradually it dawned on me, and, and it seemed like it was dawning on everybody else pretty much the same time, that the exercise was the technique, that, we, that what we were doing by connecting with our thoughts right then uh, and connecting with our bodies, with our mind, with our hearts, and sharing that with other people was creating alignment that, in fact, had the effect of calming all our minds and that it was probably the best way to go about it that there ever would be. Um, and, and John Eric said, I, I, I finally spoke up as we were in, in the class, and I said, hey, I just had this experience of, of realizing that, that what you were leading us through was, in fact, calming our minds. And John Eric said something that I just love, just a short phrase. He said, yeah, and it takes the time that it takes. You have to allow for that. I was very, very moved by that. And I really, and there's a way in which I, I think that points to what Kim is pointing toward, that we are all human. We have our bodies and we, you know, while we're alive, we're going to be in these bodies and that we cannot move away from them. And we have our psychic histories and our, and our uh, physical and, and mental uh, interactions that we carry with us. And that it takes the time it takes to meet them and to develop the compassion, compassion for ourselves and for others. It is, uh, it's not something that you just learn a technique and you, and you're, you're there. You don't, I, I mean, Dogen says, how do you think, you know, you sit down and you think non-thinking. How do you think non-thinking? Not thinking. Well, if you sit down and try and not think, guess what you discover? Non-thinking involves something different. And uh, it takes the time it takes. And it takes all the help we could possibly draw to be able to um, approach what Dogen is pointing to. He, after all, had been practicing for at least 40 years since his childhood. Uh, and, and the way Laurie, Laurie and I were talking about this recently, she said, yeah, he was at the apex of the experience of it, that he was trying to describe. He was already there, and um, it's hard for that to be advice for beginners. Uh, and I, I still often feel very much like a beginner. So uh, I see two other hands. Becky, you were first. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I really appreciate the whole thing about about how we find our own practice in, in that kind of a way. That each person is, is unique. And yet we find ourselves looking here and there and here and there, as you say, for either techniques or instructions or something. Really, the teachings are, the Dharma is there. It, it exists, right? And across time, various people have made some variations that might help 
within this time in the world, in this culture, in this, and that's why we have so many different forms of Buddhism and teachers who, who come forward as, as significant leaders in some kind of a way mm -hmm. is because things change over time in terms of the detail of what people are living with in their lives. And yet the Dharma is always the same. It's the same Dharma that is there in the universe for us to absorb and to learn from, from the world, from the nature, from the many things that are there, uh, that each of us encounter things that, that teach that to us. We encounter people who, who, like just when we share with each other, whether it's in um, a breakout group or an inquiry or, uh, or a conversation that we're having, we learn from each other the things that are the Dharma, the Dharma stuff that we need now, right? And, and to me, the excitement for me about, about the, the, I never can say all the words, but the, the, the last intensive that you and Kim gave is that clearly in, in putting it together, the big picture and then the incredible detail about what kinds of things are going on in our life that we essentially need to be aware of. Well, it's such a long, long list and complex thing that in some ways it makes it clear, no, wait a minute, the point is every, everything in our life, everything in our life is something that needs to somehow move through that filtering and teaching in our, in our daily life. And yet in the detail, we couldn't possibly make it through a day if we absolutely took everything that happened and moved it through all of those things in real time, as opposed to as our practice is, 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 is more in place for us, you know, that we, that we can, like all of the, the eight, the eight and the four and the, you know, all the, all the, all the ones that move together like that, they're completely woven. The four practice principles, the precepts, all of these are completely woven together. And as we go through our day, we notice certain parts that stick out and sort of go, oh, oh, I want to give this more attention. Or, oh, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm saying something or doing something that doesn't really fit with how I intend to be. I've said something or, or something like that. And it just gives us that ability across time. And, and sometimes I think that 
by you know going reading all the books that are out there and and taking all the courses we can and so on we're somehow keeping ourselves busy and looking for something that might be the answer the way to do it the like that i i, I laughed one time when i was we were after Zazen, we were saying the chants, and in the um, merging of def def difference and unity is the last the last thing that says, "I humbly say to those who study the mystery, don't waste time." And that day, I broke out laughing because I saw heard it as, "Don't waste your time studying." I don't know what they really meant, but there's an aspect to it where we, you know, we take notes and we write down all the all the different lists of, of things in the teaching. Mm -hmm. And do I know more when I've done that? Do I remember it all? You know? So so I think that, that what you're saying in terms of the degree to which we can be as present and and aware all the time whether it's that we're brief it's just as simple as focused on our breathing for a moment or 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 if like this morning i did ken hen walk, walking with my walker down down the hall where everybody's suite comes out and it's way in the morning, so nobody's about at all. And I was saying meta the whole time and noticing whose door I was passing. And that was one of the things that happened for me this morning that just felt so rich. But it just happened to be that moment, you know? I, I don't know what the whole thing is I'm saying here, but but I, I think that what you're saying about about each moment and being as present as we can and having many details available, but not grab them all. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. This is this is a miraculous life. Every moment. Uh, Rosemary, good morning. Good morning, hi Joel, and thank you, and thank you, Becky. You know, I, I, um, I think you know these instructions can can if one is oriented towards a self improvement plan, they certainly can, you know, can feed into that, and um, you know, it's kind of a something to to watch out for and um, as we've been talking about the present moment. The other thing that I, I remember Flint saying, this is actually in the retreat in Hawaii, um, big mind is remembering that you're always in small mind. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, as you said, you know, um, Joel, we're human. I have a, a, a mis, mishearing example that just happened with me that I, I um, think um, I like to talk about. 
So um, I've been uh, learning a song and um, that I'm going to sing by myself. And I asked a friend if she would coach me because I've never done this before with this group. And she um, she's a very hardworking person. And she really gave me a two hardworking le real lessons. She's been studying a lot herself. And uh, Saturday I was leaving her house and we hugged. I said, thank you so much. And she said, um, and she was, you know, very, very supportive during the whole time. She said, and, and when are you going to take your next singing lesson? And I said, well, you know, it's not really in the budget right now. And so I left and um, I went home and um, there were a number of other things we connected on. So I sent her some emails, you know, tips on this. And that. I actually shared a koan with her because it related to something else she's doing. Anyway. I didn't hear back from her the whole day and she's a very, very busy person. And I'm thinking, was she telling me that these are not free lessons and I need to go find a teacher? And um, yeah, and I thought that's possible, you know, I don't think that, but you know, it's possible that she, anyway, um, she got unbusy by late in the day and got back to me on all of my emails and it was completely opposite of what I thought. Um, she said um, she was so happy to do this. Oh, well, I left out the fact that I invited her to lunch as some, you know, to show my appreciation. And, um, you know, she said, you know, I love doing this with you. Let's do more. Um, you know, and um, you're so generous with me all the time and with others. And I mean, it was completely opposite. So that was a big, big um, lesson for me. Um, and um, I just wanted to share the mishearing. <laughs> Joel, you identify with the mishearing. So um, I just wanted to share that. And, um, you know, it's a lesson. And being open to um, um, what could be other than what you've heard your whole, well, your whole childhood. Life. Right. Not my whole life. Right. Thank you for telling that story because to me, I mean, that's a, it's a wonderful lesson in, in just what you're pointing to and that it seems like it's a way of you being able to appreciate the goodness of your friend and the goodness of this experience to you. And it's one of those things like, you know, like Robert Hansen or Rick Hansen says, you got to do something to let good experiences register. Otherwise they just slide away. And it seems like you sharing that is, is really letting that in. Thank you so much. And it's such a great lesson. I see Anne's hand raised. Hi, Anne. Hi. I wanted to ask you a question about <clears throat> the advice to the Kalamas about don't um, just do something or follow some way because somebody says so or you've read it or 
everybody else is doing it, etc., etc. And using your, thus using your discriminating mind, and the difference between that and reacting from conditioning. I know one example of that for me was my reaction to learning internal family systems from Peg, that I had an instinctive, what felt like aversion to that whole system. And the group of people I was with when I was learning that, everyone wanted to know what was my resistance about. I, I think I was one of those people at the time. I remember you talking about this with me, but please, so. So how do I know how I'm using my discriminating mind to discover what's true for me is reacting out of conditioning? I have, a, I have something I would like to offer as, a, as an answer to the question. Is that, is that the complete question? Yes. So I think that this is in line with what the Buddha said, but basically he says, does it lead to is your reaction? If you follow your reaction, will you have more compassion or less? Will you have more connection with others or less? Will you um, will you have, I don't know, I, I'm just saying, it, it, it all comes down to that, compassion and connection to me. So uh, will you have more of a sense of freedom in your life, or will you feel more closed in? Uh, so uh, in the self-centered dream, we can do things that are self-protective, right? We can avoid experiences that make us uncomfortable. But we can evaluate whether or not that avoidance works for us. Is it, is it helpful to not listen to something that we have a reaction to? That, you know, uh, an idea that goes against other teachings like the Shin Shin Ming like, or, or, or various other teachings. The, the, the discrimination between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind. It's like, oh, well, if I'm doing that, I'm exercising the primal disease of the mind. And yet, which one, that, that if we can hold both those things and, and be willing to uh, sit with the discomfort of exploring further, uh, it may lead to a greater sense of connection, compassion, and openness and freedom. Um, that's my answer. That's what I. That's what I try and use as a signpost, uh, or as a as guidance for that. Uh, and it, it's it's helped me get through a lot of uncomfortable stuff. Like, okay, I don't, I'm not liking this, but I'm just going to go ahead and listen, you know. And um, have you? What was your? So, you had an introduction to internal family systems therapy. And then you've heard it mentioned and, and applied. 
10,000 times since. What's, what is your reaction since? My reaction says that's not really my way. I can see the, that many people value it and it offers insight to many people, but it doesn't um, connect with me in the way that it seems to connect with a lot of people. And in that stance, you have freedom. Other people can be who they are, and you can be who you are. And nobody has to be wrong. Right. right? So that's freedom to me. Yeah. Or a variety of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I want to express my appreciation to everyone who has come forward today, everyone who has listened and, and held this discussion uh, in kindness and gentleness and hearing. Uh, and I've seen some head nods at various things and some other people looking very quizzical and, and, and shaking their heads no at various things. That kind of engagement means a lot and means it, it is a generous gift to me, to everybody else who's participating. Thank you so much.